Amartya Sen is a Nobel Prize winning economist and philosopher, one of the great minds of the past century, and he has also written a lot about identity and violence. He said, when you shrink the world to one simple thing, one idea of who you are, you make the world inflammable. He has searched throughout his life for what he sees as a place to belong, a home in the world, and that is the title of his new memoir, Home in the World. I spoke to Amartya Sen a little earlier. You talk about the need to create a home for yourself in the world. What do you mean by that through your work and the life choices you've made? We all have various ways of linking ourselves to the rest of the world in the context of schooling, for example, others who study with us, the people who play with us, and then as we travel around, there's also new people you meet. And in some ways, you are always trying to identify yourself in a way that's cognizant of the others uh, around one's life. How much of that was relevant in your life too? When you're growing up, you're living away from home, you're going to different schools, you're living with your grandparents for a while away from your parents, but you're also growing up with people of different ethnicities, different religions. How much of that played into the ideas that were forming for you around identity? Well, it's a very interesting question. I'm not sure I'm the best judge of of my life. I'm uh, fortunate in coming in a culturally rich country, but unfortunate in coming at a time because of the politics Mm. of pre-partition India that contrasts and the conflict between a religious group, particularly Hindus and Muslims, became suddenly very big. The quiet Hindu, the very tolerant Muslim of an earlier period, suddenly gave way to people who saw themselves as a sharply defined Muslim or Hindu and ready to confront others. This didn't last very long, by about another 10 years, they would be gone. But in that period, which was an intensely important period for me, particularly in the 1940s, the Hindu-Muslim diversity was a very, very strong one. And a devastating period, Professor Sen. I mean, as you say, didn't last yeah. long, but so many people were killed and people willing, who lived next door to each other in other circumstances, willing to yes. kill and die for a religion or an identity? Yes. I don't think they were dying for a religion because I think they were doing is political, identity-political mm. shape of being a Muslim or a Hindu. I think the, the religious big issues didn't often figure very much in that. In our house in Dhaka, among the places I was growing up, very fast then, Suddenly, Muslim daily labor who had come to work in this mostly Hindu neighborhood, mm. they had come for getting a little job, getting a little income to feed his children. But when some Hindu thug knifed him, there was a kind of devastating incomprehension on my part. There were people who killed him who never knew him. Mm. Uh, there were people who had enmity towards him, even without knowing things about him. Who didn't even know him. And having read your book, Identity and Violence, 
This seems to have been the period that you really focused your mind on what divides us. And you have this phrase, solitarist identities, and you believe that those solitarist identities that reduce us to a singular thing, they they make the world inflammable. People kill and kill with abandon. Why do we seek or why are we so convinced that these things matter? I think the main thing is politics is inherently enslavable. And even though normally our political presence could be very benign to each other, it is possible when a group of political activists want you to act in one way or the other, whether it's related to race or ethnicity mm. or religion or anything else, it is possible to convert a human being with normal inclination into someone really looking for a prey and a victim. And, and you're right, the idea of victimhood, the idea of resentment, the idea of grievance. Friedrich Nietzsche had talked about the man of resentiment, the person who is always returning yeah. to the wound, the grievance against the world. Why do you think that is so powerful, that narrative, that we have been traumatised, victimised, and we form our identities around that? Yeah. No, you're right. It it is not always powerful. And uh, the exciting thing uh, is that they could be made into very powerful, violent, streaking one. And then it can also go away. In the 1940s, in the same place where I saw murder and so on, in about 10 years' time, all that would be gone and people were agitating about the glory of the Bengali language, which both Hindus and Muslims mm. shared. A different, that, a different story was being told, wasn't it? Different story and one in which the give and take and the togetherness is enormously important and not the nastiness and the violence and- towards each other. Professor Sen, while you see examples there of how those bitterly divided identities can come back together again, it persists in our world. I think of Xi Jinping in China who talks about the hundred years of humiliation that sits at the heart of a modern Chinese identity. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine is about identity in his version of Russian identity, Donald Trump and his Make America Great Again or ISIS or Al-Qaeda or white supremacist groups, it's so prevalent still, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think that is the astonishing thing because it's not the astonishing thing isn't that such an inherent tendency towards violence exists, but it can be unleashed by political propaganda and actual incitement that they could be inflamed and then bound of human civilization suddenly drop. Uh, you know, I was, you asked me the question about home. This is unfortunately happening to me when I was very young. People were very concerned that my paternal grandfather called his house Jagat Kutir. Jagat is the world, Kutir is the cottage the cottage of the world, uh, he was very keen that these differences, these confrontations will go away and we will have mm. a jagat in the world, cottage, making room for everyone. Mm. He wasn't successful in that, but even in a tiny way, that's what the house was called. 
And it's that's a, what my book is called. It's a beautiful It's a beautiful idea. And I'm just wondering as well as someone who has found their life in many different places, found a home in many different places, is home for you, Bangladesh, Calcutta, Cambridge, yeah. or, or is it, Professor Sen? Is it a home in ideas and words? Yeah, it is actually. When I arrived, say, if I were to go to Dhaka today and arrive in Bangladesh, and I remember, I haven't forgotten the riots and the violence, and yet the moment I go there, turn the corner, remember the little play, little games that we young children, neighbors, Played there. There's an evocative thought right at the same time when I can also remember the nastiness of some of the things that was happening. Mm. Now, I think the book is an attempt to make the impossible possible, namely to create a home that can accommodate everyone and yet not overlook the fact that within these very benign presence, there are also some potential nastiness which could be unleashed. Mm. And, you know, it's to the credit of political leaders, whether Martin Gandhi or religious leaders, or well, literary leaders like Rabindranath Tagore or Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, that it is possible to try to conquer those nastiness in favor of a homogeneity, yeah. of a ability to live together. So it's something that came to me as a very young person, and it's very much with me, and forever with me when I die. <laughs> well, in, it, it, well, you've certainly written about it a lot, and, and all of your work, economic work, whatever, it deals with that question of how we flourish in the world with all of our differences. And I understand you mentioned Ravindranath Tagore, the, the Indian poet. Yeah. I understand he gave you your name, Amatya, for those who don't know, what does that mean? Actually, it's very easy to understand for Europeans, like English, French, Italian, thing. Amatia basically means immortal. Immortal. Mitu <laughs> is death. Amatia is the denial of death. Basically, it means someone who belongs not to this earth, but to an earth where well, people don't die. Well, you were and, perfectly named, Professor Sen, because <laughs> your your words will make sure that you are always with us, and we are so glad you are still with us and you were able to speak to us today, the immortal Amartya Sen. Very kind. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. Very kind. Very kind. Amartya Sen, Nobel Prize-winning economist and philosopher. Well, it's been a wonderful pleasure for me to have spent the past few months with you on the Religion and Ethics Report, but we're now going to welcome back a very familiar voice. Yes, Andrew is back, and from next week, he will be in the chair. Andrew West, welcome back. Thank you very much, Stan, <laughs> and, and thank you especially for doing such a brilliant job. I was enjoying, while I was away, some of those wonderful discussions, for example, with Charles Taylor. I'm, I'm in your debt because it's been a wonderful pleasure. And Andrew, you've been many places uh, during your, your break, but a lot of time in Europe, while parts of Europe are at war, as we know, in Ukraine. What was the mood there? As I travelled throughout Germany and Austria, Italy, Greece, 
the Balkans, especially the Balkans, I got the impression that much of Europe is settling in for a long Balkan-style conflict. A long now, war. does it last? Yeah, does it last a decade? Probably not. But we've now gone six months with this conflict between Ukraine and Russia, and I, oh, I suspect that a lot of Europeans are thinking this will stretch on for a couple of years. The fear is it, it could escalate. Was there that sense? I think the fear is more that Russia is able to wreak a certain amount of revenge on the rest of Europe through its energy supplies. And Europe was in the teeth of a fierce heat wave. But of course, winter comes soon. And that's when Europeans you know, need to draw on energy supplies. So there was a deep sense, I think, across Europe about what is yet to come, what is Putin's next card. And of course, that continues to strengthen political mm. uh, parties on the extremes. In Italy, the nationalists are poised at the head of a right-wing coalition to take power. Interestingly, not traditional right-wing sort of views on economics, but very nationalistic. And part of it is to do mm. with the situation in Ukraine. Now, no doubt you being you, you could not just take a holiday. You would have been working and you would have been doing interviews. What can we expect in the coming weeks now that you're back in the chair? Well, we are going to be looking, for example, at the significance of the Black Sea, not just for its geopolitical significance, but its religious significance, the Black Sea right there at the centre of this conflict in the Ukraine. We're also going to um, be hearing about the rise of nationalism in Europe. So, yes, I did take the opportunity to speak <laughs> to a few people while I was away. <laughs> when you're there, Stan, when you're there in situ, uh, and, and you've got this world of intellectual resources to take advantage of. It's hard not to. Oh, indeed. Andrew, your your listeners have been extraordinarily kind and forgiving to me while you've been away, but they'll no doubt be so happy that you're back. I'm, I'm glad to hand the program back to you and look forward to listening. <laughs> I look forward to coming back, Stan, but I think they're going to miss you too. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. And that is the Religion and Ethics Report. Thanks to Mudita Dias, Craig Tillmouth, Emrys Cronin and Hong Jung. And for me, Stan Grant, I'm saying goodbye and handing you back next week to Andrew West. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.